Hey, you're listening to the teaching podcast of Crossridge Women, and this is our fall 2022 study in the book of Revelation. For more resources and information, you can find us at crossridge.church slash wstudy. It's good to see everybody. We are almost halfway through the book of Revelation after the next two sets of studies, or the next two weeks, I mean. We, we actually will be halfway. Um, sometimes it feels like, and it has felt for me over the last two weeks, like we are leaving a lot behind. I, after our last time together a couple weeks ago, I had a few sleepless nights thinking like how much I was having to leave, leave behind. Mm-hmm. Um, just with, we have our gathering time here, and then just your interaction with the study guide at home, and then like a couple emails on Mondays, right? And I think, I can't possibly... Um, give you everything that I wish I could give you, but um, we trust that the Lord is teaching us. And also, what we believe about the Bible is that um, it is meditation literature, right? So that we're not. This is not a one and done thing. We're not studying Revelation one, and we know it for the rest of our lives. If you go to a study, um, you know, five years, ten years, two years, one year from now, and you pick up Revelation and you start restudying it, I am confident that the Lord would be um, opening your eyes to new things because he is always wanting to shape us. And that's the beauty of inductive study when we're interacting with what the text says, what, what it, the Bible says, that the Holy Spirit is um, working, that the God's word is living and active. The scriptures um, are alive with the spirit of God teaching us and, and forming us. So, um, so I'm going to leave that behind a little bit, but as usual, if you... If there's something that you think, we left this behind and I need some questions answered, please feel free to ask tonight or just come talk to me afterwards. Um, But also something you should know about Revelation is when I do ponder some of the things that I wish we could have spent more time on, because it is cyclical in nature, I, I can see we're getting there. And so sometimes I purposely leave some things knowing we're gonna come back to it and it'll be better to talk about it then after it's like, the second time through or the third time through. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, let's just pray, and then we're going to get started. Father God, we thank you. You are the Almighty. And just, we do declare with Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega, the mighty God, who was and is and is to come. Lord, we um, just confess to you that we are um, helpless to study your word, to understand the depths of your character and your heart apart from your Holy Spirit at work in us. So we ask that you would, by your spirit, through your word tonight, open our, our hearts and our eyes and our ears to hear and to see and to know you more and to see the beauty of your salvation and to uh, be willing to be vulnerable and humble um, with some very difficult and heavy topics. And would you um, just give us spiritual sight, Lord, if there are scales that need to fall off our eyes tonight in, in leading us to repentance, we ask you to do that. We thank you um, for Jesus. We thank you for the Lamb. We thank you um, that you are revealed to us in this book of Revelation. We thank you that you are here with us, and we just ask you to, to form us, to shape us, our thinking and our feeling. In your name we pray, amen. Okay. So we're beginning tonight in chapters 8 and 9, and we start off with this um, little bit that I called an interlude. Lots of commentators call it an interlude. It's sort of a pause, because we made it through last time we were together, chapter 6 and 7, we made it through the six of the seals, and we expect that the next thing that um, should happen is, or we expected that the next thing that happened would have been the seventh seal, but then in chapter seven, we were seeing, wait a minute, this is not 
this, the seventh seal, we have this pause and we had what we talk, what we called the sealing. Um, this, in this pause, we saw 144,000 um, sealed from all these tribes, representing all of God's redeemed people, we said. They were sealed or marked as belonging to God, which gave them protection from these judgments, the seals, uh, the judgments on the earth. Um, the text said that they endured and persevered in following the Lamb through suffering and hardship, right? It said through tribulation, which means um, hardship or actually means pressure. And they were worshiping. It said in chapter 7 that they were worshiping God, serving God night and day. They were experiencing the full presence of God and the fullness of that. And that's what we saw in the end of chapter 7 with verses 13 through 17. So now in chapter 8, here we go, we finally get to see the seventh seal open, and that's where we um, begin tonight. I'm just going to read the first few verses of chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God, Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up, up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Okay, so we start with silence. We've been talking about how loud heaven is, and all of a sudden there's this silence. It's a big contrast. I was just wondering if any of you had thoughts about what that was about as you were reading. What did you think that the silence might convey or do, or is there purpose to it? I thought it was just to prepare this for worse or things coming. Oh, sure, like preparation because things are getting worse, so take a moment to think, to reflect, a pause, sure, a thoughtful, reflective pause. Maybe like an anticipation Anticipation. Yes. Yeah, so a pause looking towards like something, what's yeah. coming is important, it's significant. So let's just take a pause. Yeah, let it sink in a bit. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else? I thought of it being like kind of a sober moment because, like, as we talked before, it was so loud, it was so much worshiping, and all of a sudden everything stopped. That's kind of strange it is strange yeah that's like, good if con continuously there was worship and glory to god and all of a sudden it stopped yes it for it to stop it is yeah, yeah that is a strange yeah. sort of almost unsettling thing it makes you stop and pay attention maybe oh, yeah. which is a lot maybe what we've already said like about a dramatic pause like a dramatic pause that's a good <laughs> yeah that's really good and that was something's really loud and it's quiet. You know, you go at a concert and all of a sudden it's quiet. It's almost like you can hear like, oh, yes. You're like, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> you can hear, yeah, you can yeah, hear was, other things. I was thinking that that was like the number seven, too. Mm -hmm. So the dramatic pause, but like fulfillment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like in a... In the Bible, this number of seven, we always go back to Genesis and we think about creation and there's six days of creation and then the seventh is almost mm -hmm. like a pause. Yeah, I thought of that too, like a rest. And almost signifying, yeah, like it's coming to an end. end. Yeah. It's ending. God is doing his work. Now it is accomplished. Yeah, that, I think that's a good, like that follows the design pattern of, of that scripture. Good. Um, lots of commentators say that maybe the silence sort of allows the prayers to be heard. I don't know that God needs it to be silent. But it is sort of, um, like Nikki said, this dramatic pause where we're just seeing the prayers um, go up from the altar 
um, to God and sort of a worshipful or awe moment to really reflect. I think everything that we said, it's good. Uh, what, what follows that, um, all the trumpets that we're about to see are actually a response to these prayers going up to God. So the prayers go up and then the trumpets sound. So last week we talked about how structure, observing the structure in a passage helps us sometimes identify meaning. And we also talked about dialogue, how dialogue can sort of advance the plot or help us know what the, the author uses the dialogue to, to really put a fine point on what he wants to say, which I think John did in chapter six and seven. This week we're going to talk about repetition and how repetition brings meaning. And I have yet to study a book of the Bible inductively where repetition wasn't my best observation skill and the easiest one and the one that probably everyone should start with. If you have never studied the Bible inductively where you like mark the text and you read it and you look for things and or you're teaching someone to do it, I think you should always just say start with repetition. What's repeated? Um, it's the easiest one to see sometimes. Sometimes it's not that easy to see, but that's why a repetitive reading is our friend. We say, read it, read it, read it. Even if you can't do anything else when you're studying um, a book of the Bible in the beginning, if you read it like over and over or listen to it even better sometimes repetitively, then those repetitions start to um, sort of jump out at you. So why do all the biblical writers use repetition? Um, First of all, I think it's because the Bible was written in a time or into oral tradition, right? They weren't reading it like we read our Bible 15 minutes in the morning, it's all quiet. They were gathering together and they were hearing someone um, like read the scroll or someone who had actually put the scrolls to memory. And so if you think about it, repetition, it when you're listening to something and you hear something repeated, it's easier for you to remember, right? Think about children's stories. I was just thinking about a lot of the children's stories that I remember as a kid, and I was thinking of like Three Billy Goats Gruff and uh, the little boy who, what is it? He cried wolf. Yeah, yeah. The, the boy who cried wolf. Like it's, it's this repetitive, cyclical story. You, you remember it because it's, there's repetition in it. Um, and along with that, then, so, so why repetition? Because uh, humans are formed through repetition, right? We learn by repeating things. That's how um, all sorts of things are formed. Our, our physical bodies are formed through repetition. Our minds are formed through repetition. Even our heart and our loves are formed through repetition. So, yeah, repetition. That's good. Okay, so I thought what we could do is if you have your Bible open in front of you, let's just go through, or you maybe have a place in your book where you write down the repetition, or you might have marked it um, according to the study guide. So however you want to do it, let's just start at the beginning of chapter 8, and we'll just, as we sort of, you can scan through, and why don't whoever wants to give me some of your, what were the repetitions you saw? Starting at the beginning of chapter 8, we'll just work our way all the way down. And if we skip something, you can go back if you think, oh, that was important repetition. I marked fire and burned up together. Yeah. <clears throat> and did you, where did you see that? Uh, in 5, and then three, four times in 7, twice in 8. Good. And also I marked furnace um, with yeah. that as well, but I don't know if it's... Okay, so why did you mark furnace? Because it's hot. <laughs> hot. Oh, oh, I see, yeah. <laughs> like that it's, like it's all in here. Yeah. That, yes, yeah. Actually, there is something really interesting about this. So, um, I'm not sure if we've talked about this before, but the symbol of fire in the Old Testament, what, what do you think it might symbolize? Probably all of those things, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, actually. Um, 
usually, often, it represents judgment because you think of it in regards to the altar, right? Um, the, the fire on the altar. So, it, so fire represents judgment. And the interesting thing about the furnace, so that's in um, chapter 8, it says, no, chapter 9, right? Smoke from a great furnace. And this idea, this, um, this is actually exactly how it talks about it at Sinai. Okay, so God descends on Mount Sinai and he's, this is like he's giving judgment in that. Remember, judgment means de- deciding between. So he's saying, here's my law. This is what's good. This is what's evil. I'm giving you my law. That's, it's, he's giving judgment. He's telling them what is right and what is not in giving them the law. And the other place that it uses that exact thing, like a great furnace, is um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Or maybe not. Maybe that's another one to come up. I'll leave that here because it's, um, it's connected. Oh, dear. I don't know. Could be that. Could be spelled that way. I don't know. Uh, yeah, this also actually, and this one might be part of this, uh, which you could mark with it. Smoke. What did it say? Fire, smoke, sulfur or something? Let's do this all together. Fire, smoke, sulfur. It's something like that. We'll keep those all together. Yeah, because they're sort of all the same hot. Yeah, so I think it's talking about like judgment is coming. Whenever you see that, did you notice how the fire was thrown down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was hurled down. So that too, this idea of something being thrown down to earth, mm-hmm. that also, also means judgment in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Especially in the prophets. <coughs> Okay, what else? What other repetition? I should also say that repetition can be a few things. So repetition is, first of all, like what you see repeated in the passage you're studying. But then also maybe you see something is repeated in this passage that you already saw in the book elsewhere in other chapters. And then it also can be that you saw this somewhere else in the whole story of Scripture. So sometimes we call that parallel in parallels instead, but I think it's all a form of repetition, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, what other repetitions did you see or mark? A third. What's that? A third. A third numbers. Okay, so a third was yeah all all the way through this, through the first four trumpets. Um. What did you learn from this? What do we learn from this? I think that it's not like a total, it's, it's a limited judgment. Yeah, it's limited. It's restrained, limited. Yes. Yeah, oh, oh, very good. Restrained, limited. It's a portion, right? It's a, a portion, fraction. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have grade five kids who are learning about fractions? Yeah, it's a portion, it's limited. Feels it's, like you're giving time. It's restrained for. Yeah, yeah. If we were, if we were going to say, what does this teach us about the nature of God? In that we're saying, okay, it's one third. How do we interpret that? It looks like it's it's a it's just a portion. It's it's partial. It's limited. What does that teach us about the character of God? Definitely, mercy, patience. Yeah, good. Any other numbers? that you marked, that you thought we could learn from? Yeah, five months. So also, yeah, a limited, just in particular, it was only five months. There's, there is a time limit set. Well, seven again. Yeah, seven, seven again. Another cycle of seven, right? Anything within that cycle of seven that was Repetitive or parallel in any way? Primer was given or were given, just like the yes. trumpets. Yes, yes. So just like the trumpets, there was this was given. Yeah. And what are we to understand by that when we read that? 
God's in control. Yeah, the sovereignty of God. Yeah, that God is in control. That it does not happen apart from his hand giving that. seal again. Yes. And where was that? I just want to put the, the number. Nine. Yes, in, in nine. Okay, so uh, what did we learn about that when seal comes up again? What is the main thing that we're supposed to understand when, when seal comes up again? It's nine... Nine four. What does it say about a, a seal? Yeah, so the people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads, they're the ones that are being harmed, um, but they, they are not. They are protected. Can we say that? Or spared? Someone said spared. That's better. Okay, so we saw that before. Is there anywhere else? Uh, can you think of anywhere else in the biblical story that this whole idea, the sealed are protected or spared? Exodus. Exodus. Yeah, good. Yeah, the 10th the plague, right? Yeah, the 10th plague. The blood on the doorposts, those who are marked with the blood on the doorposts are spared the judgment, the wrath of the tenth plague. Good. What about also like Rahab and Jericho? Yes, very good. Rahab. Yeah, definitely. The cord, right? The red cord out her window, and she is spared because she has seen this Yahweh God, and she believes that he is the one true God. Yeah, good. That also happens in uh, Ezekiel 9. Did anyone read that? <coughs> Was that one of the... Did I fail on the cross-references? Yeah, Ezekiel 9, it's almost an identical um, thing that happens where the, the Lord tells the prophet to go through the town... Yeah, there's something that happens, and it, and it says, The Lord said to him, Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the detestable practices committed in it. This is just helping us for when we get to um, later chapters in Revelation, right? We just have to keep looking at this, because this is important. Yeah. Um, he spoke to others in my hearing, pass through the city after him and start killing. Do not show pity or spare them. Slaughter the old men, the young men, the women, as well as the children. But do not come near anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. And this is in response to uh, the idolatry in Jerusalem. Yeah, It's a horrible story. Um, but it's another example. Like It's a, it's a prophetic story. Tale. Ezekiel had to act out a lot of really weird stuff. Mm -hmm. Ezekiel might be the hardest book. If we think Revelation is hard, I think Ezekiel's harder. But God made him sort of act out a lot of things about the judgment that was to come on, on Israel and Judah. And it's awful. So, But the same sort of theme, that there is those who are marked and they are protected from the judgment of God. And those who are not spared are those who defile or, uh, yeah, are idolaters. Okay, any, what other repetition did you see? Locust? Locust, yes. Okay, where have you seen locusts before? Exodus. Yeah. Locust reminds us of Exodus. So here we are again. We just said that this reminds us of Exodus, where people are spared. Some are spared by a certain mark. Um, and now here we're at um, the locusts are reminding us, too, of the Exodus and the plagues, right? All right, let me find that. 
Okay, so let's talk about the, the locust for a second. Okay, the first thing we have to do, I'm glad that you thought back to Exodus. Um, lots of people, when they read Exodus, a very common way to interpret that is to, to move forward, to look forward. And there's a lot of people that um, think what we need to understand by the locust is that like there'll be um, like physical battle on the earth through like military helicopters. There's a really famous book written in 1969 by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And he said that, and I know it's, it sounds funny, but seriously, there's, it is a real um, interpretation. People believe that, um, that what those helicopters were were actually um, attack like American Apache helicopters. There are some people now that think they are drones. They stand for drones. But I think uh, John would not, was not telling people to like look ahead and try to guess. He always was pointing back to the Old Testament. We know that because so he's, he's talking about, hey, we know that the plagues of Egypt, right? So um, it's really good to look back in Exodus, and we know it's one of the plagues. Why were the plagues sent? Yes, right, right. Moses was there saying, let my and people think, go. And I think he was, and I think his heart was hardened. Yes, his heart was hard. Pharaoh's heart was, was hard. There, was, there were a lot, there were like warnings. Yes, warnings, very important word, I think. Yes, the plagues were warnings to Pharaoh, and God was judging uh, the sin of Egypt in that. Someone over here said sin. Uh, you, if you've studied the plagues before, you know, you can go through and you can see how, uh, like, they're all very tied to the gods of Egypt, right? The different plagues were tied to different gods of Egypt. So God was not only just trying to let his people go and doing this cool trick of letting go some locusts so that Pharaoh would say yes. He was also judging the idolatry of Egypt, so it's two things, and we're going to see this throughout the whole, all these two chapters and the rest of Revelation. Like, God's heart is, is judgment against idolaters and those who are purveyors of injustice. And that's what Egypt was. They were idolaters. They worshipped all the, these other gods, and they were oppressing Israel. The other place that locusts are is, is in um, the book of Joel. Here's another fun book. Um, yeah, so locusts are pretty much all through Joel. And uh, I sent that up to you this week in the email. Yeah, that like Joel, God was giving the prophet Joel this picture, this imagery of these locusts that were going to just ravage the land. And that was God was sending a foreign army against them because of their idolatry. So it's the same, right? Do you see the parallel? Um, it's sort of a parallel theme along with uh, Locus and Exodus. Okay, what else is repeated? One word. Um, so also the word trumpet? Yes, yeah. So I felt like it was repeated several times. Very many times, yeah. And I don't know if that has to do with the promise or I don't know. Because when the horn, whatever the trumpet, yes. you know, and then you look at Joshua. Okay, good, good, good. So you saw trumpets, it's repeated a lot, and you thought of Joshua, awesome. Because they march and they blow a trumpet. Yeah, so. Really good connection. So what does it mean? Because at first you said something else, you said, is it what? what I, I thought it was kind of promise, but the trumpets here were not promise. You know, they were not, not promise. <laughs> not good things. Yeah. You thought maybe it was like, oh, this is grade nine band, we're playing yeah. the trumpets. Yeah. There's lots of promise here. No. That was a good trumpet. But what were the purpose? What was the purpose of the trumpets blowing around Jericho? Warning. Warning. Oh, good. It is. It is. Judgment is coming. It is a kind of promise. Oh, shaking the wooden spoon drawer. In my house, it was like, Dad starts to unbuckle his pants. You're like, okay, the trumpet has sounded. I, I could, don't bring out the belt. Yes, and the wooden spoon drawer. That's very good. Yeah, warning of trumpets. 
Also, in, in scriptures, you can think about um, trumpets also like, uh, okay, so along with promise, they sort of announce the king, right? Um, still, we think of it that way. And, and it sort of is that, like, hey, just so you know, <laughs> the king is coming and he actually will judge, um, yeah, idolatry and injustice. So really good. Yeah, really good. Along that same line, like if we talk about promise, I think like, yeah, with the trumpet sounding, Jesus is coming. So like all through all these horrible things that are coming, the ones who are sealed, they should look at the trumpets as, hey, yeah. even though you see all these horrible things, yeah, don't right. give up. Yes. Don't despair. Yeah. Because Jesus is coming. That's the right. Trumpets are sounding. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, this, let's just maybe... If, that, if it's okay, we'll just wrap it up with this because that's what you're doing so well, Christiana, is just wrapping it up. So the, it's good to see that this is another cycle of seven and that it has sort of similarities, that there's a group of four and then there's this five and six. When we looked at the cycle of seven seals, there was the four seals that were sort of about the earth, right? Conquering, war, injustice, scarcity, death. And then there were these other two seals, five and six, and they were about something that was happening in heaven. The cries of the martyrs and then the stars and the moon and the sky like splitting apart, this idea of like judgment that God is moving and acting. Uh, then here, again, in the seven trumpets, we see one to four are about creation, and it exposes like the created world that people, the unrepentant, look to for um, security, put their trust in. They put their trust in creation in the world, and that is judged, okay? Because like that is like that's not God. Creation is not God. And then in five and six, instead of seeing heaven, we actually see the abyss. It's kind of a contrast, right? And this demonic sort of under what underlies injustice and idolatry the sin of idolatry and injustice is actually not from god it is from the abyss yeah so commentators say that this is like two cycles of of god's judgment on the earth what is happening right now on earth so we already said last time we see war we see injustice like someone said well i was reading it and i thought well we have that now death famine scarcity all those things um and now this we're coming around and so i read to you right before chapter or verse six in chapter eight I read verse, verse 5, and it said, And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. That happens at the end of every cycle of seven. So it kind of shows us, and that signifies there. The judgment is like, that's it. This is a complete unit of judgment. And now we start again into these seven trumpets. And this time, it's looking at it from the, the point of view of, yeah, the, the idolaters, the earth dwellers, the people who um, are actually unrepentant. Um, and that's the point of it in the very end. So, we, so these seven trumpets are judgments that, and some people say, like, this is what we can expect now, right? That people look to creation. Um, they, they're idolaters. And what does it bring? Bitterness of sin. It brings spiritual darkness. It leads to a, a sense of inner torment, like hopelessness for a time, that, that there is no hope. It's, it's actually hopeless. And eventually can even lead, will lead to death, right? Uh, the wages of sin is death. Um, and the whole point of all of it, so now getting back to what we said about warning, that God is warning people. He is warning those who, who do not believe in him. He is also maybe warning those who do to say, hey, pay attention, pay attention and hang in there. What did the OR need, need to hear? The, the original reader who was suffering persecution, hang in there. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't compromise, right? I know it's hard, like, but I am judging evil. I am judging the idolatrous. I am judging uh, those who are purveyors of injustice. And I am carrying my people through this with my protection. 
and under the mark of my name. Hey, I hope you enjoyed being a part of our large group observation this week as we looked at repetition in chapters eight and nine of Revelation. And I hope that you learned a little bit about how to observe repetition in the biblical story, how it can point us back through the story of scripture. We can see these patterns and parallels all the way through and that that can uh, inform meaning and help us to understand what the, the author meant to say. And also, I hope it showed you a little bit how we can then move forward from our observation into a ter- interpretation, understanding what it means, not only for the original reader, but also for us. And then application, how we can live or think or feel uh, anew because of what we have understood from our observations. Uh, the rest of what you'll hear was uh, the, the final teaching from uh, chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation. So before we, well, in just coming out of that conversation, two more things that I think we didn't talk about in um, the repetition that I think we should talk about before we go on. Just a couple pieces of information I wanted to give you. Um, first of all, this um, in the fifth and sixth trumpets, I think this idea of snakes and scorpions was repeated. It's just kind of a weird thing. I didn't want you to go home tonight and be freaked out if you see a spider in your house. So <laughs> I thought we should talk about this. Um, so when you think of snakes in the Bible, yeah, you go right back to Eden, right? That's good. Yes, of course. You go back to Eden. The great snake, the serpent who deceives the whole world. It'll say that later on in um, Revelation, actually. Um, But there's a couple other places in the Bible where actually snakes and scorpions are referenced together. And so Deuteronomy 8, you can write this down and and look at it later. But God's talking to... um, Through Moses, he's talking to the people saying, talking about snakes and scorpions as the beasts of the wilderness that God brought his people out of. So those uh, animals representative of the the wilderness wandering and like being in the desert and snakes and scorpions. And and when you read that whole uh, passage in Deuteronomy 8, there's this sense, you think about these these animals of this wilderness and what they represent. And do you, can you think of what, what is the sin of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness? How would you describe it in one word? Sorry, what? Disobedience. Unbelief. Unbelief. You know what? And, and that's Hebrew says it, right? Hebrew says that this, that was unbelief. And it, and it, comes in all these things they disobey and they grumble and it all comes back to unbelief so there's this sort of an image this imagery of unbelief and and God talks to them saying like these beasts of the wilderness snakes and scorpions and then Luke 10 Jesus Jesus talks about snakes and scorpions and it's when he sends out the 72 and they go and they say like Jesus even the demons like responded to us when you know at your name they like they submitted to us and Jesus says to them I give you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and the power of the enemy okay so when you read that Jesus was not saying right that they had this miraculous power from now on that they could go step on snakes or step on scorpions and they would not um, get hurt if you studied Mark with us, you'll remember that there's that weird part at the end of Mark that actually is not, was not in the original text and some versions of the Bible tack it on and it talks about snakes too, people stepping on snakes and not being injured and there's some thought that it it goes back to some of this. It's connected in some way. Um, Anyway, but there again, snakes and scorpions attached to this idea of the power of the enemy, okay? 
So there's uh, commentators say because of that, you can look at this as, as imagery of Satan's work in unbelief. Right? Isn't that, what he, isn't that what he does? Like all the way back, the snake in the garden with Eve. This is what the enemy does. Did God really say? And in broader Jewish literature, actually, then snakes and scorpions became figurative for sort of judgment in general, but in particular, judgment against deception. Okay? This idea of false teaching, deception that leads to unbelief. So along with that, then when we get to the sixth trumpet, and we talked about this a little bit, there's this repetition of this phrase, from their mouths. The horses, these demonic horses. And what's coming from their mouths, it says, this is where it says fire and smoke and sulfur. And it says it, uh, this is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, blue, and yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. Okay, so again here... Um, this idea that these demonic troops, horses, are killing through deception, false teaching. So now this talks about physical death or spiritual death? Well, well yes. I would say, because the whole progression of the, the trumpets is saying, what happens is, first of all, there's a hopelessness of spiritual death, right? When we don't have belief in, belief in God. And ultimately, the wages of sin is death. Yeah. Um, there's a, a, a writer on Revelation named Michael Gorman, and he says, the rejection of the divine gift of life carries with it inherent deadly consequences. Right? Rejecting God has deadly consequences. The, in other words, the deception of idolatry, in the end, it kills it starts by killing, I think, spiritually. This, that word torment that was in the fifth trumpet, it was, that's used, when it's used in the Bible, it's always talking about this inner, uh, inner unrest or whatever. Like, uh, it's used in David and Saul. Remember Saul? And that idea of this inner torment, not, not external, like physical tor torment, but this torment that's inside that that it describes as what we've been calling this hopelessness of longing for death, and you can't even have that. Um, so the plagues and the plagues of Egypt are really what John had in mind when he was talking about the trumpets. It's all through. There's so much connection to the plagues of Egypt. This time in the history of God's people where God was judging the idolatry and the injustice of Egypt. And so now we live in this time which um, the biblical authors call the latter days. And what that means is the inaugurated kingdom. So since the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, the kingdom has started. Going through till his second coming when the kingdom is fully consummated. We live in these, la in these last days or in the latter days. So when you read that, we often think, well, that means the end times right? That means the end. But actually the latter days and the last days means after Jesus' death and before he comes again. It's this, around here we call it the now and the not yet kingdom, right? Jesus is ruling and reigning and yet not totally because fill in the blank. Scorpions and snakes, whatever. Um, but so this is what to experience. The trumpets show us here's what's happening between Jesus' death, resurrection, and the second com coming. This is what we can expect. There is judgment on idolatry and injustice because God is sovereign. And those things profane his name and they profane his image bearers. Um, and those who worship the Lamb are spared. Why? Because they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. 
Uh, and in God's mercy, he warns those who are idolaters and those who are committing injustice uh, to repent, to repent. And these warnings also encourage us that God is in control, that he will take care of injustice and evil in the world. And they sort of are a message to us to like, wake up, don't fall asleep, be ready. The king is coming. In some sense, he has already come. Um, and so that is the whole point of the trumpets, what, what we can experience now. And the, what is the point then of God giving these warnings to the people? Why is he always giving the warnings? Well, it tells us at the, at the end of the chapter that um, we just finished in Revelation 9. I'm going to read it to you. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. I think actually this, this is the saddest and the lowest and the darkest point of Revelation. In spite of what we think, this is the most awful part. That after all the seals and the trumpets and the warnings, some will still reject the Lamb. They are so hardened in their heart, in their hopelessness. They're seeking death rather than the waters of life offered by God Almighty and the Lamb. Um, that judgment itself is not enough to lead to repentance for some. Uh, we're going to talk about that next week, next time we come together. And as you study, because there's something beautiful in this that it's not God's judgment that leads to repentance. What does the Bible say leads to repentance? His kindness. Yeah, Romans 2.4. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And in God's kindness, this is all I'm going to say about chapter 10 and 11 because I'm going to send out some information for you on Monday because it's just too much to do all tonight. All I'm going to say is in God's kindness... He knows that judgment is not enough to lead to repentance, so he sends to the earth, to the world, his church. Us. Us. Two prophetic witnesses. He sends his church. So that is what you're going to be looking at this week in chapter 10 and 11. Um, but we're not going to go there. Okay. There is still hope. Yes, there is. Thanks be to God. And you know what? We're part of that hope. Now that is a word. Yeah, we're part of that hope. Yeah, it's going to be, that's going to be a good, it's going to be a good week. Okay, why do we struggle with judgment? You guys probably had a lot of answers there. Um, I think it's good to just say um, it's terrifying, right? It can make us ask a question, is God good? Does he place favorites even? Sometimes when we look at this, we're like, well, he's saving his people and not the other people. What if my people are not his people? <laughs> yeah, what if he's not gonna save them? That's, that's scary. Um, one thing I will say to that is I think sometimes we've gone off track when we think about God judging that he, he judges his people. So when we look back at the Exodus and his people in Egypt and we say, oh, God judged Egypt because those were his people and he needed to get them out of Egypt. And then we play that forward and we say, well, if you're not his people, too bad for you. He's judging you. Um, and actually, God wasn't judging Egypt because Israel was his special people. They were. He heard their cry, right? He heard their cry. 
and he came to help them because he actually felt, he felt sad for them that they were being oppressed. But God judged Egypt because they were idolatrous and they were oppressive. And God judges that sin. I, I was talking to someone the other day and I was just telling them about sort of this wonderful thing that happened um, to my husband. He has to have some knee surgery and like we didn't even pray this prayer, but we got this amazing news. We're like, wow, we didn't even think to pray that and here God answered it. And she said to me, well, God takes care of his own. And I thought, but he also takes care of the foreigner. He does. He takes care of those who are not his own. This is not a special club that just because we're his people, then we get, you know, we get the good treatment. Throughout the whole Bible, he cares for the foreigner. Sometimes he judges his own because they are being unjust. And they are being idolaters. That's what we see in the exile. Um, but, so, does God play favorites? No. Is God good? Well, that is a complicated. Yes. The answer is yes. God is good all the time. Why else do we struggle with judgment? We don't see our, see our sin as that bad? Some people are nodding. You said that. Maybe we're not actually sure what we believe when it comes to this. Because, like, am I under condemnation? Like, what about Jesus? Like, was that judgment? And does that, do I qualify under that? Like, can I get under that? But then also Revelation is saying, well, there is, like, this final judgment. So where does that leave me um, right now? There's a lot of good questions um, that we can have. It's okay to have. That we struggle with, you know, this idea of judgment. And I just think ask these questions and keep um, studying and talk to other people about them if you are like, I really need to talk to someone about this. But I think it's really good to say, to ask this question instead. What must we believe about God in order to accept this judgment as, as good and right? And what truth do we know from scripture that comes to bear here? So first of all, we already sort of mentioned it, but the depth of our sin and our complicity in it. We, I think we really easily sort of like sweep that aside or we don't sit in that. Um, and God's grief over it. We, we just read this sad thing. These people did not repent. That God is grieved over idolatry and injustice. Why? Because he knows that what his creation needs is his presence. That's the best thing for his people. And they're rejecting it. Right? Or they are um, causing injustice on other image bearers. Those who he loves. Those who bear his image. We already talked about this. God's mercy and patience. You guys saw this so often. He gives opportunity um, for all to turn to him in repentance. And then I think this idea that God is holy is really important doctrine to press into here. That he will and must judge all sin. Okay, we've said this a few times. This idea of injustice and idolatry is specifically in mind here in the trumpets, and God must judge that. It's actually good for him to judge to judge that. We, we want him to judge that. And then along with this, I mean, you can study the holiness of God on your own, but I think one thing that I like to say about the holiness of God is that it's not an additional characteristic. It is central to all of his character. And we've said this before. That means that God is holy in his justice. He's holy in his goodness and he's holy in his love, okay? He is without sin. Um, there is a speaker and writer named Jackie Hill Perry, lots of you um, know her, and she has this really good bit. You can find it on TikTok, I'm sure. But she says um, that if God is holy, it means that he cannot sin. If God cannot sin, it means that he cannot sin against you. And if God cannot sin against you, that makes him the most trust, 
worthy being in all the universe. And that's what it means to believe that God is holy. And sometimes when it comes to just our view of like, is this good, it's our understanding is wrong, right? And that goes back to like our understanding of sin and how, uh, and what the most important thing is actually, comfort or to actually be with God. Okay, final thing, five minutes. Can we have a gentle word about the sovereignty of God? Um, because it, it is coming up a lot, and it's going to come up a lot more. And I think this is really important to talk about after coming out of the trumpets. And coming out of judgment, I want to say coming out of judgment, but we're not coming out for a long time <laughs> till chapter 16. So maybe right in the midst of judgment, let's have a gentle word about sovereignty. Because you know what? In some sometimes in the church, we're not gentle when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Instead, we um, sort of wield it as a weapon. And, and I think it's because, Rebecca and I were talking about this today, and I think it's because we don't want to deal with the emotion that it evokes. Now, this is very tightly tied, I think, to what we just talked about, how like God is judge. Okay, So it has a lot of crossover here. Because um, we can sort of toss about this idea of God's sovereignty sort of cavalierly, like, well, God is sovereign, so too bad for you, type thing. Um, or, or maybe we can sort of deal with it with an, an attitude like sort of a grin and bear it. Like, well, God is sovereign. Like, take your medicine. It's good for you. <laughs> right? Um, so I think, first of all, we need to be honest about the emotion that it evokes to really think hard and deeply and honestly about God being sovereign and holding all things and this fact that some of this stuff that is given brings some pain and nastiness and disruption here on earth, okay? To people that we love. Um, and so what's some of the emotion that this, that this can evoke? Well, first of all, I think fear, right? The question is, am I safe? Um, to be honest, sometimes when I, when I think about this, I think this is why, I, I can see this is why it would be really easy for me to adopt a more linear and literal view of Revelation. One that says, you know what, God will come and rapture his church, and then all this nastiness will happen, but I will not be here to see it. Because it's fearful to think that um, that the earth will be judged, that, that there is judgment on the unrepentant, that I might have to watch people that I love who refuse to repent, who don't want to turn to Jesus, who don't see the Lamb as beautiful, um, in spite of all the warnings and his mercy and his patience. So fear definitely um, can cause us to sort of um, make some small adjustments and compromises or even believe some things or not believe certain things when it comes to God holding all things in his hand, okay? Um, secondly, uncertainty. Because we're wondering, is God really good? Sort of a, it's sort of connected to, am I safe? Um, but I think we need to be honest and say, it's easy to say God is sovereign, in difficult circumstances when they're not happening to you. But when they are happening to you, I think we need to say, yeah, but this feels awful. Or it is hard. It's okay to say that. Um, I, I want to say this to you. Two things. First of all, you can feel tension between the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Okay, You can hold these two things and say, I'm holding these two things they, they kind of pull on each other. I don't really know how I can hold on to both of them because there's tension between the sovereignty and the goodness of God. You can feel that tension and still have faith. Okay? In fact, I think you ought to. I think you ought to feel tension there. It's necessary. If you don't, if those things don't, like, no, there's no, I don't see any conflict between the two. It's just fine. I actually wonder if your God is too small 
right? If you're not truly viewing like this fearful God, right? How deep his wrath and anger is against sin and injustice and idolatry, and yet how holy his goodness is. We are human beings, right? How can we, how can we just neatly compartmentalize these things? Um, I think this is faith, to actually hold things in tension, to hold two things that say, well, I don't really know. I don't really know how it works. I think that is faith rather than pagan religion, which really controls and manipulates everything neatly so that you can say this is how it works. And in a way, you're sort of controlling the deity because you figured it all out. You figured him out. You know, you know exactly how he works. That's a safe thing because then you're the puppeteer, right? You can control him. The second thing is... I think to, to hold these two things in tension, which maybe we could cause believing them both to be true, okay? So to hold these two things in tension does not mean you have to fully comprehend, comprehend it, which is kind of what I just said. And humility might say that you can't. So when it comes to these sort of things and we're looking at like, okay, God judges um, the unrepentant, and it comes through like these circumstances that bring about inner torment and hopelessness and, um, and eventually like and deception that can even lead to like ultimate death apart from the lamb and apart from God. Um, I think we need to, to, I think I need to allow you to let yourself off the hook of trying to trace God's hand of sovereignty then through all the difficult things in your life, okay? So don't take this, like, God's sovereign hand and then say, okay, well, this, here's how it was so Okay, well, what about that? Like, how is he, how is he doing that there? Um, because that's what we want to do, right? People even want to do that with, like, terrible things that happen in the world. And, and this is a place where Christians have done terrible damage um, to people, saying that things have happened, right? Like, 9-11 happened, like... And, and Christians would go and say, this is why, this is God's judgment. Or, um, you know, like earthquakes or, or tsunamis. So this is God's judgment on that nation. Like, it is a tricky business to try to trace God's hand of sovereignty through difficult situations. I think we are off the hook from that. We don't need to do that. It is, yeah, tricky business, but at worst, it's maybe a fool's game. Like, it's foolish to do that. Um, and sometimes I think it's because we think we can theology our way through this. Right? We can just believe all the right stuff. If we have the good theology, then we can actually just explain it to you. I think that is pride, and I don't think it's faith in God. It's faith in theology, which is different. Um, and actually, I think John would maybe say, faith in theology is idolatry. It takes greater faith in God than faith in your neat theology to hold these two things in tension, God's sovereignty and his goodness. And I, I think we need to say that more often in the church. Um, and one thing I think Revelation calls us to do is embrace the mystery of God. Embrace this, that you can't understand it. Like, there's some awe there. If you can just figure it all out, if you've got it all line by line, you know, this and this and this, like, you, you've got him figured out, where's the awe? Right? Where's the mystery of that? I cannot explain it because he is unexplainable. Right? Yeah. And that is precisely, in my experience, what makes him so compelling to me, and so big, and so interesting, and it commands awe. So what is important then? Not focusing on tracing God's hand in hard circumstances of life, but let's focus on tracing our response in hard circumstances of life. Will we draw close to God? with refined faith and love and trust and repentance, looking to him? 
Or will we blame him and become hardened and further unrepentant? So this is what we do when we say we believe the gospel. We hold this tension that God is holy. That sin is a personal affront to his name and his creation. So we ought to tremble before him in holy fear. Feel the weight of your sin, your your complicity in it, your tendency towards it, the way that you so easily, that I so easily turn to other things as God, that we worship idols. And we even cause, like we act in injustice, right? To the people that we live with, to the people we drive behind, to the people in the line at the grocery store. We're all complicit. So feel the weight of that. And you know what? Let it lead you to mourn in the face of a holy God. And then, behold, be assured that you do not see a lion. You see a lamb slain from the foundations of the world because he so loved us. He bled and he died that we might not perish, but that we would have life with him forever. Does that stir gratitude in you? Does it stir love in you? It should. Uh, we're just going to pray here tonight, just for a couple minutes. And then, um, yeah, I'm going to let you keep chatting or pray with people if you need to. If you need to pray, if you need to talk to someone and say, I feel like I need to confess or I need to repent from something, um, let's normalize this with the church. <laughs> we talk about it a lot, but still it feels uncomfortable. But come and just... Uh, pray with us. Some of our leaders will come. We, we love to pray with you or pray with someone at your table. But let's just take a moment um, just to turn our hearts to God. Hey friends, thanks for studying along. And wherever you are, it's our prayer that you are knowing the blessing that comes from reading, hearing, and keeping the words of Revelation. We'll see you soon.